It's the center of contemporary culture in Barcelona. And the um, publisher of my most recent book, um, Capitan Swing, for having invited me to spend the next few days in Barcelona. I had no idea when I accepted this invitation um, many, 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 many months ago uh, that um, Catalonian elections would spark the debates and the mass demonstrations. I arrived yesterday evening and caught the um, tail end of the demonstration that happened yesterday, but we won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> But I'm glad to say that um, I'm here as a witness uh, uh, during a pivotal moment in the history of, of Catalonia, uh, where uh, people are speaking out about the democratic right to self-determination. And it's interesting, the last time I visited this uh, region, I was in Bilbao and San Sebastian and Biarritz in connection with a conference on political prisoners and in particular, a campaign to free Arnaldo Ortega. Um, and so it's quite interesting that uh, my last visit was to the Basque country. Now I'm in uh, Catalan. Um, well, let me say that I'm glad that Arnaldo Ortega is now free and I very much look forward to meeting him uh, in person. I actually went to Bilbao with the intention of visiting him in prison. And I only made it to the gates of the prison. They would not allow me um, to come in. And I, I noticed that he wrote a preface to um, my autobiography that was also published. I just real, I didn't know that. I just saw someone with a copy. Uh, uh, a short time ago. But let me get to the title of my presentation and I should tell you that I injured my foot hiking and this is the first talk I've given where I have to stand up uh, for 45 minutes or so and I, I, I think I can endure. If not, uh, I'll just move over to the, the chair. Okay. <laughs> now I'm fine now. <laughs> The title of my presentation this evening, I was actually asked to talk about this topic, Revolution Today. And I hope I'm not disappointing people who may have expected me to provide formulas for fomenting revolution. I wish I could do that. Uh, uh, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think there are such formulas. And I want to actually reflect on changing meanings of revolution. And so I want to begin by evoking a memory. Uh, and as I listened to that very extensive uh, introduction, uh, uh, it, uh, which was great because I was happy I was happy to have the opportunity to remember some things which may have faded away somewhat. Uh, uh, and, and so I want to evoke a memory of participating 50 years ago 
in a conversation, an open discussion with black activists in Southern California under the rubric reform or revolution. This discussion was moderated by um, uh, a woman who is a, 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 an important uh, friend and comrade of mine, Charlene Mitchell, who was a member of the Communist Party at that time. She afterwards became the first uh, black woman, the first woman of African descent in the United States to run for the office of the President of the United States. Uh, and later she became the central organizer of the International Campaign for My Freedom. So in many respects, I owe my freedom to her amazing organizing um, capacities. And if I'm not um, uh, incorrect, she, she came to um, this part of the world. Uh, I'm not sure whether she came to, to Catalonia. Yes, I think she did. The most contentious aspect of the discussion that took place on that evening 50 years ago involved the role of white workers. Because a number of the black activists were convinced that there was no possibility that white workers could play a revolutionary role. The black communists who were there and I was not yet uh, um, a member of the Communist Party. They argued that if we could not envision a broader working class movement that has the capacity to cross racial borders, we would only ever achieve reform, not revolution. In other words, we might be able to win some victories in the arena of civil rights, but we would not be capable of overturning the structures of capitalism. I should tell you that my political circles during that period consisted of activists and intellectuals who were convinced that we were on the verge of changing the world. And of course, we read Marx and Lenin, and we revered figures like Che Guevara and Che Guevara's, uh, uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of his death was yesterday. Um, there was a massive celebration uh, in Santa Clara in uh, Cuba. We revered Fidel Castro, Amilcar Cabral, Ho Chi Minh, and we identified with the Palestinian struggle. Yes, 50 years ago. We challenged narrow black nationalists whose theories and practices were adamantly anti-racist, but because of a myopic focus on race, their ideas were also ensconced in the unexamined terrain of capitalism. So we wanted revolution, not simply reform. We did not believe that racial justice could prevail under conditions of capitalism. And we were convinced that with our internationalism, with our internationalism, 
we would bring down the structures of capitalism in the foreseeable future. In the foreseeable future. During that period, no one could have persuaded us the evolution was not forthcoming. We read, we theorized, we organized, we struggled with the kind of intensity that emanates from the conviction that revolution is on the horizon. We wanted socialism and we wanted racial justice. And we were convinced that we could achieve these goals. Let me say parenthetically that we had not yet learned how to incorporate gender or sexuality or a range of other issues in our analysis. Uh, but looking back on that era, I can say that I am extremely happy that I had the opportunity to experience that, that palpable certainty that a radical change was about to happen, even if we turned out to be wrong. And of course, you already know the outcome. The revolution didn't come. <laughs> The revolution we were fighting for never really materialized in the way we had conceptualized it. But in the very process of fighting this unsuccessful revolution, and in one sense very unsuccessful in the sense that capitalism would become more powerful than ever, in the process of fighting that unsuccessful revolution, we learn crucial lessons about the process of revolutionary change. And I think we help to produce changes that have in many ways revolutionized the way we think about human relations and the planet we collectively inhabit. We did not achieve socialism in the world, but we did discover how much more profound and complicated revolutionary processes need to be. And in the process of these struggles, questions emerged. Many questions that helped to spawn academic, new academic fields and, and new movements, but perhaps most importantly of all, new questions. First of all, the question regarding the relationship between racism and, and capitalism. You know, later in the early 80s, I read a book um, entitled Black Marxism. Is anybody familiar with that book? by Cedric Robinson? Somebody said yes? Heard of it, haven't read it, okay. Well, it was a, it was a very enlightening text. It's a very enlightening text for me uh, to read. Uh, because I came to understand that if we assume the un question centrality of the West, its economic, philosophical, and cultural development, then 
the economic modes, the intellectual histories, the religions and cultures associated with Africa, Asia, and indigenous people will never be acknowledged as significant dimensions of humanity. The very concept of humanity will always conceal an eternal and internal clandestine racialization, forever foreclosing possibilities of racial equality. And needless to say, Marxism, uh, uh, and I uh, am uh, you know, very happy to have been introduced at a very early age uh, to Marxist ideas. Uh, I think I read the Communist Manifesto when I was in high school uh, in New York, but I, I'm going to correct the um, I'm going to correct the introduction uh, uh, to point out that my my first um, contact with communists, and this actually substantiates the point you made about experience. Uh, my first contact with communists came when I was a very young child uh, um, because black communists had moved to Birmingham, Alabama in order to organize uh, both black and white workers. Uh, this is during the period of the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, and some of my parents' closest friends uh, uh, were members of the Communist Party. And by the age of six, I had learned that you never talk to the FBI. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, uh, when I was arrested, I did not talk to the FBI. <laughs> You know, I kept I kept hearing uh, my mother's and uh, other voices in my head. Don't say a word to the FBI. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, um, Cedric Robinson's uh, analyses, which in in a sense are both an embracing of and a critique of the Enlightenment uh, context of Marxism. Uh, it revealed new ways of thinking and acting precisely through encounters between Marxism and black intellectuals and activists who helped to constitute uh, what Robinson called and others such as Robin Kelly uh, have uh, uh, and many others have called the black radical tradition. Although Eric Williams book Capitalism and Slavery was published in 1944 and now you know that that was the same year I was born, thanks to the introduction. <laughs> uh, the, the text, Capitalism and Slavery, um, was pretty much marginalized. Uh, and 
As a result, scholarly efforts exploring the relationship between racism and capitalism have remained relatively marginal, which is very bizarre since capitalism would not exist without slavery, without colonization. And while it is important to acknowledge the, the pivotal role slavery and colonization played in the historical consolidation of capitalism, more recent developments linked to global capitalism cannot be adequately comprehended if the racial dimension of capitalism is ignored. So I, I, I make this point because uh, the, the, the term that um, Cedric Robinson used is racial capitalism that capitalism is racial capitalism. It is impossible to begin to understand the workings of capitalism without recognizing that uh, racism resides at its very core. So this means that we have to take very seriously the fact that histories of colonialism and slavery cannot simply be relegated to the past as as moments that can be um, transcended by attempting to assimilate black subjects and subjects from the global south into an unchanged enlightenment-based discourse of human equality. And this, of course, is, is what we have experienced. This is the perennial problem in the US. Uh, uh, the assumption that uh, racism is addressed by simply assimilating um, uh, those who have been targeted by racism into a society that remains as racist as it was to begin with. The racism underlying these histories of colonialism and slavery are now asserting themselves with a vengeance here in Europe, but also in Africa, in Australia, in North America. The failure to address what is often referred to as the refugee crisis or the immigration uh, crisis represents the contemporary presence of these histories. The deeply racist responses uh, uh, from failures to admit refugees by European countries uh, to the overt Islamophobic attacks by the Trump administration. And I promised myself I wouldn't talk too much about Donald Trump because we might uh, end up uh, overspending our time here. Um, but I have to, to point out that the, the threat to build a wall to prevent Mexicans and Central Americans from entering the US, which of course replicates the apartheid wall in, in, in Palestine. Let us not forget that. This, constant, this constitutes an effort to ignore the contemporary consequences of those histories of colonialism. And since I uh, evoked uh, the Israeli occupation of Palestine, uh, let me say that uh, that represents not only 
the most egregious form of contemporary settler colonialism, but a settler colonial state that is intent on continuing to expand. As a matter of fact, uh, solidarity with the Palestinian struggle and support for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement should be on the agenda of all progressive struggles today. You know, someone, someone told me that um, Sahar Francis might be, uh, oh. Saha Francis uh, is the leader of the Palestinian organization Adamir, supporting political prisoners. And I want to personally acknowledge the extremely important work that you have done. Thank you so much for your work. And I was extremely happy to be able to witness and assist in developing the ties of solidarity uh, between black movements in the U.S. and, 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 and uh, the Palestinian movement, uh, not only because I feel it is our responsibility to offer that solidarity, but because of the fact that we have a great deal to learn uh, from the Palestinian struggle. When we look at the struggle in Palestine, it becomes clear that state violence against black communities in the U.S. cannot be eradicated by simply hiring better police officers, by hiring police who are less racist, or who have attended anti-racism workshops. <laughs> and of course, all the while keeping the police apparatus intact. And that apparatus incorporates uh, 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 some of the histories of colonialism and slavery I was uh, referring to. Uh, so it, is, it has been very helpful to activist groups in the U.S. who have uh, learned an enormous uh, amount from our relationship with uh, uh, the Palestinian struggle. So thank you so much. I'm so glad to see you here, uh, Sahar. Thank you. The point I'm trying to make is that revolutionary change is impossible as long as we do not address the extent to which repressive apparatuses, police, prisons, etc., and the social structures preserve these racial, racialized and racist histories. I guess I'm suggesting also that the enlightenment imperative of progress that we always look toward future progress. And the West, the countries of the global North, come to symbolize uh, that prog progress, which places uh, you know, Africa, other countries in the global South at a great uh, disadvantage. But if we 
assent to that imperative of always looking toward future progress, it prevents us from seriously engaging with the past. Now, I think about white people in the U.S. who try to excuse themselves from responsibility for the continued reproduction of racist structures and discourses by saying, but I never owned slaves. Or I never attacked Native Americans. Or I never joined the Ku Klux Klan. This simplistic, um, neoliberal, individualistic notion of responsibility that denies the impact of history is precisely the reason why so many historical conjunctures in the U.S. have been defined by racial explosions. In the U.S., and you can draw your own um, conclusions about the uh, situation in, in Europe, uh, but I can say that I uh, have experienced on many occasions uh, efforts on the part of white people in Europe to point elsewhere as the site of racism. That, that the U.S. has been the site of racism. Uh, and South Africa has been the site of racism. But failing uh, to uh, examine and critically engage with racism within their own backyards. Uh, and I say this because, you know, I can remember when, and I'm going off script here, if that's okay. Uh, I, can, I can remember when, when I travel in Europe to thank people for the amazing organizing that was done around the demand for my freedom. I know that I would not be free today had it not been uh, for uh, the... Um, millions of people uh, throughout the continent of Europe who stood up and said no to racism and repression in the U.S. And I am deeply thankful to every person who was involved in that movement. And at the same time, I can say that I was, I was very disappointed when many of the same people were reluctant to engage in conversations about immigrants way back when. Or when I would visit France, and, and most of my friends in France uh, were, you know, from, uh, from Africa or Haiti or Guadeloupe or, you know, they were black people. <laughs> hear France being referred to as a white country, as if black people and what we call people of color in the U.S. did not exist. And I think that there may be something of a problem like that here, uh, where certain populations are rendered invisible, not even recognized.
And you see where we are in the U.S. Uh, we have never seriously considered the irreparable damage done by the enslavement of African descended people and the genocidal colonization of indigenous people. When attempts to spur popular engagement with these histories are made, then black subjects and indigenous subjects are represented largely as the objects of unending violence. And thus, in a process that is explicitly designed to rehabilitate them, are further dehumanized and transformed into humans for whom pity is supposed to be experienced, but with whom otherwise no essential connection is allowed. And of course, I could pose the same question here in Catalonia. Have you begun to address the lasting effects of colonization? Have you, have you addressed the legacies of fascism? And I can tell you that when I, when I, um, saw the images of the police attacking uh, demonstrators, was that last Sunday? Uh, that was the first thing that came uh, to my mind because I'm a person who was very much informed by um, solidarity uh, with uh, the movement against Franco. And in my political formation, the the reason I asked you what song you were going to sing, the revolutionary songs that I learned how to sing was songs of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but anyway, while we tend to define revolutionary change as a radical dismantling and remaking of economic structures in society, and of course, I have no qualms at all with this, this is what we have to do, but we cannot then ignore the realm of consciousness. Over the last three years in the US, the Black Lives Matter movement has served as a catalyst for radically different ways of understanding racism in US society and, and, and beyond. And I can tell you that I am, I am, um, shocked to hear conventional mainstream news reporters uh, engaged in all of these um, reports on racism. It used to be that racism was a bad word. It could not even be pronounced in public. As a matter of fact, when Barack Obama was elected to the presidency, that was represented as the advent of our post-racial era. And of course, race came back with a vengeance, uh, <laughs> with a major vengeance. Uh. But it has been thoroughly exciting to witness the ways in which new youth formations, um, you know, revolutions are, are always made by the youth. Um, and, and those of us uh, who are older um, have to learn how to 
um, take leadership from young people. Um, uh, and I always say it's a wonderful time to be young, this period, uh, because so many changes. Uh, but also it's a great time to be old because one gets to see the fruits of the work one has done for decades and decades in the ability of, of young people to engage the issues that we groped our way towards understanding with such facility. And I say this because I see a new a feminist inflected internationalism in black activism that highlights the value of queer theories and practices. And I also see a structure of leadership which challenges the conventional uh, masculineness, uh, uh, individualistic, uh, charismatic um, notion of leadership that we've had to uh, deal with uh, uh, for as long as I know. Um, I, see, I see the offering of a, um, a notion of leadership that is collective. And so when one looks at the organization, the network Black Lives Matter, there are three uh, black women who are uh, who are the co-leaders of that movement. Uh, but I wanted to, do I have time? Um, <laughs> I wanted to say a few words about um, the, um, the tendency to assume that Black Lives Matter, for example, represents the return of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and of course, there is, uh, there's always the tendency to want to do a compare and contrast you know, kind of analysis. Uh, uh, but if one considers the relationship between the Black Panther Party, which celebrated its 50th uh, anniversary in um, 2016. Is that right? Last year it was founded in 1966, yes. So. so as we consider the relationship between the Black Panther Party and the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement, and of course there are many organizations. There's, uh, uh, there's Black Youth Project, uh, there's Asata's Daughters, there's uh, the Dream Defenders, uh, there's Justice League. There are a whole number of, of Black youth organizations ac across the country. But if one considers the relationship between the Black Panther Party and, and the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement, it feels like the decades and generations that separate one from the other create a certain incommensurability as a consequence of all of the economic and political and cultural and technological changes uh, that uh, make the contemporary moment so different in many report, important respects uh, from the late 1960s. So, so I was thinking perhaps we should seek connections between the two movements that are revealed not so much in the similarities, 
but rather through their radical differences. The Black Panther Party emerged as a response to the police occupation of Oakland, California, which incidentally is where I have lived for the last uh, 40 years or so. Um, The police occupation of Oakland and many other urban communities across the country. It was an absolutely brilliant move on the part of Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to patrol the neighborhood with guns and law books. Uh, The gun representing uh, uh, resistance and the law book representing um, uh, democratic rights. Uh, So you know that story, right? about uh, what uh, they did. They, they simply would go up to the police who would be arresting someone and they'd ask the people uh, with the law book, are you aware of your rights? And the gun, which at that point was legal, it is, it is not now legal to carry a weapon in public in California as it is in Texas and Kansas and many other places, but that's another question. Uh, Uh, and you know about the problems we have with gun violence. Uh, um. And so basically what they did was to police the police. They policed the police, they patrolled the police. And at the same time, this strategy, it was admittedly also inspired by the emergence of guerrilla struggles in Cuba, liberation struggles in Southern Southern Africa and in the Middle East, and by the successful resistance offered by the National Liberation Front in Vietnam. But in retrospect, uh, this strategy, which was so brilliant and led to the expansion of the Black Panther Party, not only all over the country, but all over the world, But in retrospect, it reflected a failure to recognize, as Audre Lorde put it, that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. In other words, the use of guns, even primarily as symbols of resistance, conveyed the message that the police could be challenged effectively by relying on explicitly policing strategies. Uh, And I'm being self-critical here in these reflections uh, on our time 50 years ago. Black Lives Matter, which initially emerged in the aftermath of the The hashtag uh, emerged in the aftermath of the killing of Trayvon Martin. And then um, in Ferguson 2014, um, the protest in Ferguson um, uh, spurred the three women, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, uh, and um, Patrice Cullors to create a network. uh, And this manifested a collective desire to demand justice for Mike Brown, who was killed in Ferguson, and for all of the black lives 
sacrificed on the altar of racist police terror. But they also asked us to radically resist the racist violence at the very heart of policing structures and strategies. Black Lives Matter very early on recognized that we could not simply demand accountability for individual police officers. Rather, we would have to place the demand to demilitarize the police at the very center of our efforts to move toward a more critical and more collective mode of justice. Uh, And this was ultimately linked to an approach that calls for abolition of policing as we know and experience it. Uh, uh, Demilitarization also contested the ways in which police strategies have been transnationalized within circuits that link very small U.S. police departments, such as the one in Ferguson, Missouri, to Israel, which dominates the arena of militarized policing associated, of course, with the occupation of Palestine. So you see, you see the movement from, from policing the police to developing an understanding of the, 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 the role of um, militarization within police departments, which allowed us to recognize the extent to which police departments are descended from slave patrols historically, and at the same time in receiving this so-called counter-terror training, it links our understanding of racism with the emergence of a, a, of a, um, a terrible Islamophobia that is, is uh, justified by the so-called war on terror. And so it means that our understanding of racism has to become more complicated uh, if Islamophobia becomes one of the the, the, the most um, um, spectacular and dramatic uh, um, expressions of racism today. And so this means that black people who want to challenge racism must necessarily engage in actions of solidarity with Muslims. Uh, and with people who are mistakenly identified as Muslims. So we're talking about revolution, right? And I'm trying to suggest that that the way we understand our worlds makes a difference. And I haven't... um, Well, I was actually going to also do another uh, um, comparison, which I'll just abbreviate. Uh, The Black Panther Party attempted, um, sometimes really unsuccessfully, to embrace uh, feminism. Uh, uh, And perhaps it was a sign of the era Many people aren't even aware of the fact 
that the majority of the members of the Black Panther Party were women. Those who built the movement were women. Uh, but of course, it was a masculinist, uh, militarist movement that required women to become more masculinist than the men in order, well, that's, uh, <laughs> but, And also during that period, there was an attempt to embrace uh, the gay liberation movement. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, article that Huey Newton wrote in the newspaper, The Black uh, Panther, uh, laying out all of the reasons uh, why radical black activists needed to um, support the gay liberation movement. Um, which was somewhat different from the LGBTQ movement today in, in a number of respects, uh, um, which has, and I'll say parenthetically, uh, we always seem to capitulate to processes of assimilation. Uh, and, 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 and and supporting uh, ardently uh, LGBTQ issues, I also have to say that the emergence of marriage equality as the central demand um, represents an, uh, an assimilationist effort. Uh, uh, the gay liberation movement at that time was critical of the capitalist structures of, of, of marriage and the nuclear family. And I always ask myself, you know, why is it not possible to um, make demands for civil rights such as marriage equality, but at the same time point out that this is not the path to liberation. That as a matter of fact, it's an oppressive institution based on property uh, distribution and inheritance. And perhaps let me move on to say that, um, you know, the mainstream feminist movement has made serious, serious mistakes. You know, I often point out that when, when I wrote my, um, when I wrote a book that was published in 1981 called Women, Race, and Class, uh, everybody started referring to me as a feminist. And my response was, I'm not a feminist. You know, I'm a black revolutionary. <laughs> because I didn't see how the two had anything to do with each other. But I realized that I was talking about a certain kind of feminism, a bourgeois feminism, uh, a feminism that is still, unfortunately, um, yeah, white, white bourgeois feminism, which is unfortunately uh, the, the most represented feminism today, and most people think of that as feminism. Uh, uh, but, uh, but that ignores the fact that huge numbers of, 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 of 
organic and 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 academic intellectuals who are women of color have transformed the very nature of feminism and the hallmark of feminism today is what we call intersectionality a recognition of the and not only not only the interrelating um, uh, character of identities but as I frequently say I think intersectionality is is most helpful when we think about the intersectionality of social justice struggles. Uh, uh, the mistake made by mainstream feminism and its continued reliance on categorical representations of women. As soon as one assumes that, that women can be categorically represented, it means that there is some clandestine racialization happening there, right? And you hear the term glass ceiling feminism. I don't know whether you have that here. Glass ceiling feminism. Um, this is what uh, Hillary Clinton um, represented. But, but glass ceiling feminism is represented, it's grounded from the very outset in hierarchies. I mean, how else does that metaphor work? Those who are already high enough to reach the ceiling are probably white. And then if they're not white, they are already affluent because they're at the top. All they have to do is push through the ceiling. And as long as I have identified as a feminist, it has been clear to me that any feminism that privileges those who already have privilege is bound to be irrelevant to poor women, working class women, women of color, trans women, trans women of color. If standards for feminism are created by those who have already ascended economic hierarchies and are attempting to make the last climb to the top, how is this relevant to women who are at the very bottom? Revolutionary hope resides precisely among those women who have been abandoned by history and who are now standing up and making their demands heard. I truly believe those who already have privilege is bound to be irrelevant to poor women, working class women, women of color, trans women, trans women of color. If standards for feminism are created by those who have already ascended economic hierarchies and are attempting to make the last climb to the top, how is this relevant to women who are at the very bottom? Revolutionary hope resides precisely among those women who have been abandoned by history and who are now standing up and making their demands heard. I truly believe, and men should applaud this, that this is the era of women. I truly believe that. And I am referring not to the women who just have 
who only have to break the ceiling to get where they want to go. Uh, but I'm referring to the women at the very bottom, poor women, black women, Muslim women, indigenous women, queer women, trans women. As a matter of fact, trans women of color have been most despised, most subject to state violence, most subject to individual violence. Uh, and so it seems to me that um, we can say then that people who have suffered in that way, when they begin to rise, the whole world will rise with them. The whole world will rise with them. If we stand up against racism, we want much more than inclusion. Inclusion is not enough. Diversity is not enough. And as a matter of fact, we do not wish to be included in a racist society. If we say, if we say no to hetero patriarchy, then we do not want to be assimilated into a misogynist and hetero patriarchal society. If we say no to poverty, we do not want to be contained by a capitalist structure that values profits more than human beings. If we recognize that those who wanted to solve the problem of slavery by creating more humane forms of slavery were employing the logic of racism we say that those who call for police reform and prison reform while retaining the racist structures as they pretend to address the problems of racism, that they are absolutely wrong. And this is why we say no to carceral feminism and yes to abolition feminism. Yes, to abolition feminism. And so I want to conclude by suggesting that our notion of revolution, our notions of revolution, need to be far more capacious than they have been in the past. Certainly, we need to dispose of what has become an unmanageable system of global capitalism that permits the eight richest billionaires in the world to control as much wealth as the poorest half, half of the population. That is absolutely obscene. And even those billionaires should think that it's obscene. But also recognize that we must be prepared to continually challenge that which appears to us to be most normal. Revolution upsets normative processes, class-based, gender-based, race-based, sexuality-based, ability-based, and I'm just beginning the list. And in this sense, there will always be revolutions looming in the future. Thank you very much.
Tenim, m'acaben de dir, només hi ha una persona traduint, per tant, hi ha uns 15-20 minuts com a molt de preguntes. 15-20 minuts for questions. So, I beg you, please, just a question per person, and a clear and brief question. Hi ha micros, també, que podem repartir. Ah, ok. En espanyol o en inglès? No ho sé. En inglès? Ok, soc de Madrid. Soc d'un col·lectiu afrofeminista de Madrid. Som tots joves. És el seu nom. I volem preguntar-vos, perquè som tan joves i encara lluitem. But it's so hard for us to wake up every morning to fight against not just patriarchists, you know, white women, uh, black, black men in our community that aren't helping us. How do you do to wake up after all these years of still fighting? <laughs> because, <laughs> because we are already tired, so it's like, how do you find the strength? Because we need it. I swear we need it, please. Well, thank you, and it's really wonderful to see you. <laughs> um, you know, um, for me, I could never have not engaged in struggle. And I think early on, I began to realize, especially after experience of not winning the revolution, we thought we were going to win, uh, that it would have to be a lifetime of struggle. And when one imagines, one is to devote one's lifetime to struggle. It becomes, it's not that, that, that the intensity um, wanes, because the intensity doesn't wane. But it's a recognition that you also have to learn how to take care of yourself in the process. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, sometimes I get tired, everybody gets tired. But, but I, know, I know how to make myself okay again. You know, I know how to meditate. Uh, I know I practice yoga. <laughs> I hike. <laughs> and I think that self-care is so important. Uh, but self-care, that's not individualistic, because it, it used to be that it was imagined as something that one did outside of the struggle. And also it meant that, 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 that people who were involved could not bring their whole selves uh, 
Uh, and we know that, that people have experienced an enormous amount of trauma. Uh, but the venue of struggle was supposed to require people to leave that behind and become the activists. And I think now we're learning that we have to collectively address those issues. Uh, we have to learn how to deal with intimate violence. Uh, uh, that is not something that should be uh, placed in a hierarchical relationship with state violence. Uh, intimate violence helps to produce and reproduce state violence, which in turn produces and reproduces individual and intimate violence. Uh, and finally, this is a, a question I'm really passionate about, uh, because I think there are a lot of ways in which uh, one can um, uh, take care of oneself uh, uh, collectively. Uh, but also, it's a matter of perspective. And you're very young, um, and that's wonderful. And, you know, I admire you uh, for your early commitment. Um, but sometimes we don't know how to um, understand ourselves in relation to others. We we think of ourselves as individuals. You know, neoliberalism has done a hell of a job in persuading us that at bottom, all of us are just the, the particular bodies that we inhabit and that we have no connections, uh, uh, no essential connections, maybe with family, but certainly not with people who have gone before us and certainly not with people who will come after us. And so, you know, I've been, been recently thinking about the fact that, that the many generations of people who, are, who have been involved in freedom struggles have always imagined something better. A different kind of world. And when, as, 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 as African-descended people uh, in, in North America who were descended from slaves. And so we have to think that those who were struggling against slavery had a collective imagination of a better time, a better place. And we are the ones who represent that imagination. We, in that sense, are the materialization of their imaginations. So that means that we have this essential link. This is why I think um, um, indigenous uh, cosmologies and 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 um, um, in in Brazil, for example, Candomblé, in terms of African-based religions, play a lot of play an important role in helping us to create spiritual uh, relationships and connections with people who have gone before us and people who will come after us. Uh, and so I, you know, I can pretty much, well, no, I, I shouldn't say I'm pretty certain that the revolution is not going to happen in my lifetime because one never knows when a particular, you know, conjuncture, historical conjuncture emerges and things can radically change. Uh, 
But even if I do not get to experience uh, uh, the change that I want, I can pretty much um, be sure that someone else will experience it. And that even though they may not be familiar with me personally, um, I know that the work that I have done will help to create a new world and that there will be human beings with whom I am now spiritually connected who will benefit from that. And so that's what allows me to continue to do the work. <laughs> Sorry for my English. Eh, por lo tanto, hablaré eh, <laughs> en catalán que es mucho más fácil para mí. Bueno, antes de todo, di gracias. Antes de todo, gracias por tenerla aquí, por sentirla, por verla. No sabría cómo explicar como aquella noia la meva emoció, com estaré dintre d'un mes i dintre d'unes setmanes encara estaré boja per veure-la davant meva. Eh, sóc activista i com a dona negra et vull preguntar com podem tirar endavant amb un país que no ens estima, a un país que ens fa invisibles, amb un país on sempre serem lo pitjor que hi ha al costat, amb un país on la gent ens mira pel carrer i els hi donem fàstic. Com podem pujar en un país així i pujar els nostres fills, que és molt més difícil encara? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is the terrible work that racism does. This is the work that racism does. Uh, and what is sometimes um, so frustrating is that people who become the agents of racism are not even aware of what they're doing. They're not even aware of the way in which they uh, invisibilize uh, 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 people who don't look like them. Um, how to live in a country like that? Well, you know, my experience has been that you create community. I was really fortunate to go to, I say I was very fortunate to go to a segregated school <laughs> when I was, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a child. Uh, I, I, I lived in the most segregated city in the United States. It, it was called the Johannesburg of the South, Birmingham, Alabama. But our, our teachers, uh, well, for one thing, uh, whenever we sang the national anthem, and you've heard about all of the, you know, the NFL and the national anthem, we also sang the black national anthem. And I, 
I was so fortunate to have teachers who who taught us uh, uh, that uh, we were not who white people assumed we were. That that we we created the kind of community that allowed us to give expression to our dignity as human beings. and, and I think struggle helps because rather than turn inward, rather than internalize all of that racism, if it's possible to find ways to stand up and fight it. That, that has been my solution. I've done that all my life. And I, you know, the first, um, my first organization uh, was when I was 11 years old. And we actually had um, an interracial discussion group. And then I should, actually I should say something about white people too, because oftentimes, you know, there's the assumption that, that black people or people of color have to teach white people how to address racism. Or that it's a problem that afflicts communities of color, but that is not a white problem. And, you know, fortunately, in the U.S., um, things are, are really changing. I don't know if you've seen some of the demonstrations and, and, and the huge numbers of young white people who are standing up and, and saying we need to tear down those uh, racist statues from the Civil War. Uh, and that, uh, that a woman who was killed in Charlottesville, her mother, who, uh, who not only refused to speak to Donald Trump, but she said she wanted to do whatever she could to um, further her daughter's legacy, which was standing up militantly, radically against a racist inequality. And so, so I know you're not there yet, but I think you can get there. And it may take some time. But the creation of communities of struggle, uh, and I've always believed that we have to find ways of you know, crossing racial barriers and boundaries. We need everyone. Uh, who will stand together. You see, l- let me just tell you, the re- you know why tr- Donald Trump was elected? Well, first of all, the majority of people didn't even vote for him. And he was, a, he was elected in that respect as a result of a racist institution um, uh, that's called the Electoral College. But the, the white people who listened to him talk about how he was going to bring jobs back that had migrated uh, 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 outwards. They weren't aware of the fact that their predicament is pretty much the same predicament as that of people of color, people in prison, for example. Why do we have 2.5 million people in prison in the U.S.? Uh, precisely because of the deindustrialization of the economy. If you want to understand the political economy of, of, of over-incarceration, you recognize that 
vast numbers of people began to go to a prison in the 80s and they began to build new jails and prisons, which was precisely the emergence of global capitalism. And at the same time, of course, that meant the deteriorization, the, the deteriorization and the, the, the dismantling of social services. Uh, and so the huge number of people who are in prison because they have become surplus populations, there's no place for them, there's no jobs and, 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 and there's no education because education has been defunded and there's no health care because health care has been defunded. They're pretty much in the same predicament as the white people are who believe that by voting for Trump their jobs are going to be brought back. And they don't even recognize that, that he made however many millions or billions he has as a, as a result of uh, that process of, 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 of out-migration of corporations. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we made a mistake. We should have also been organizing those white people. Oh, white people should have been organizing those white people. <laughs> white people should have been telling them that, you know, the same conditions have created your predicament. Well, you need to stand together with, with, with people of color who are in prison. And well, anyway, you, you understand what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. Uh, uh, and then there has to be sometimes a way to give expression to that sadness and a way to find, you know, music, I think, is a realm that has a great deal to do with social justice. It helps us often express that which we are incapable of expressing uh, within the context of our, our, our movements. Um, so I wish you a lot of luck. Hang in there, stay strong. Hola, um, correct me if I'm wrong, this wasn't said on the introduction, but I think back in 1997 you came out, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I just wanted you to, um, to give us your point of view on the, um, what do you think about the LGBTQ black community uh, do you think or, um, that there is still a need for, uh, for that revolution today in order to gain visibility or respect to the same level as the LGBT community or any other community? What do you think about Well, absolutely. Um, and I think when I said that, that revolutions are far more complicated than they appear to be, and they're often represented as... Um, only as um, a shift in the apparatuses or the structures. Uh, um, at the same time, we have to address um, collective consciousness uh, and the impact of ideology. And certainly um, the impact of homophobia, transphobia on black communities has been as great as it has been on any other community. I mean, I do take exception to those who try to create the impression that black communities are more homophobic. 
when one can also discover um, one can discover examples of um, organizing leading to you know very important uh, uh, consequences. I'm thinking of work that I did in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know if anybody's heard of Louisville, Kentucky. It's like uh, if you've heard of Louisville, you you think of the Kentucky, you think of the horse races, right? Uh, but some years ago, there was this very, very important um, um, coalition between the black community and the LGBT community around issues of fairness. Uh, and so for a while, on every Sunday, most black ministers in Louisville, Kentucky, did sermons against homophobia. I mean, the point that I'm making is that organizing can make a difference. Uh, and I don't know whether it makes sense to simply, um, I mean, this is why even when I talk about trying to dismantle white racism, it makes no sense to just complain about it if you haven't tried to change it. Uh, if you haven't done the organizing, uh, now if you've done the organizing and there are people who still won't change, then later for them, they've missed the boat. Uh, um, but I think that um, that recently, especially uh, with the emergence of very important um, uh, black trans uh, figures and leaders, uh, uh, we, we're seeing um, we're seeing significant changes, and I I, I say that um, the work that I do primarily, and I actually didn't get to talk a lot about prisons. That's what I that's what I that's my passion, and that's the work that I do. But there wasn't time to uh, talk about the the abolition movement. But I often point out that uh, our movement owes a great deal to um, uh, trans prisoners and trans activists, uh, not only in terms of uh, uh, the knowledge that trans women of color, black trans women, are the uh, most consistently um, uh, despised and they, they're made into targets of state violence and, and, and intimate violence and other forms of individual violence, but that we also came to recognize how central that struggle was to the prison abolition movement. Because the prison apparatus itself is also a gendering apparatus. Uh, when we begin to recognize how the male prisons, uh, female prisons, I guess uh, you have uh, the kind of binary gender prisons in here in Catalonia and yeah, you don't. Um, and that does ideological work. That does ideological work with respect to the larger society. So if we want to understand how that, uh, how that binary gender um, structure became so stable, it has a great deal to do with prisons. And so that must mean that our abolition movement has to also involve the abolition of gender policing. Um, so you see, I, I mean, I am most interested in 
those kinds of connections. Uh, I'm interested um, in ways in which uh, 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 movements can be generative with respect to each other. Uh, what you know, what can what can be learned from the relationships uh, uh, among well within the LGBTQ movement. The um, the T was left out for a long time. And then there's also an I that sometimes gets, that almost hardly anybody talks about intersex. Right? So, yeah, it's a long struggle. Freedom is a constant struggle. <laughs> Freedom is a constant struggle, but I think we have to be open uh, to um, recognizing the the deeply um, the deep intersectionality of, of struggles and so my work with LGBTQ uh, movements and issues has been with within that intersectional framework as has my work against racism as has my work against uh, uh, misogyny I don't know I, I, I kind of uh, um, grew up, I think, wanting to make connections uh, and study critical theory, and that helped me further. And uh, and I'm still doing it today. I'm still trying to learn. So thank you. Thank you so much. And That's it. I mean, this. I'm, it's very sad, but if you want to come and meet her personally here, we have to stop. Let's do one more question. One more okay. question. One more question. Now you should. Okay. Okay, just come up and I'll give you my microphone. Wow. <laughs> Um, hi, nice to meet you, Angela. Are you going to speak in English? No, I'm going to speak in <laughs> okay. Catalan. Catalan, okay. Whoa. And then I need translation. Yes. Eh, hola, bueno, buena tarde. Estoy muy agradecida al Spy CCCB por haberte portado aquí. También por haber portado a la Chimamanda de Nietzsche hace unos días. Y eso, más que una pregunta, es una reflexión que volen fe desde parte de un colectivo que son afrodescendentes, afrocatalans, negras, que vivimos aquí a Cataluña. Y en <ríe> y en Sagradaríamos, veían eh, que ya una iniciativa por parte del CSCB de abrir puertas y de hablar de negritud y de activismo, esperen que a partir de ahora es pude crear un pon entre la comunidad afrodescendente negra y catalana eh, que vivo a, a Cataluña y el CCCB, porque hasta el momento no en Pogut fue eh, la que está conexión y esperen que escucha. Well, so that is a challenge. 
This is the the first time since I've been here that uh, that that questions of black Catalan people has been raised, and I think that that's kind of sad, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm so glad that you got to ask or make the last statement because that's a challenge to everyone here in this room. That is the challenge. Europe is no longer white. Europe is not white. And and let me say let me say one one final uh, one final um, let me make one final point um, because of course I do a lot of speaking and a lot of writing about black struggles uh, and. Um, and I don't think those struggles are important just because they're about black people. But I think if one does not understand that the struggles of African descended people, indigenous people who have been fighting for centuries, the entire history of people of African descent in Africa and in the diaspora is a history of struggle. It's a history of struggle for freedom. And I think that history is important precisely because of the fact that freedom has always been the unfulfilled goal of those who have been compelled to live in horrendous conditions of unfreedom. And it's always interesting that when you, when you set up these standards for humanity, the standards involve those who are already there, who are already, who are already free. And I always wondered, why is it that we cannot identify with those who spend their entire lives in the quest to be free. Because if there's anything that humanity ought to uh, mean, and when I say humanity, I'm not, uh, I'm not excluding other beings who are not human. Uh, um, it is that, 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 that centrality of freedom and who represents, you know, black people represent that, have, have the, I mean, that is the history of black people and therefore all people, regardless of their racial or cultural background, ought to identify with that. Doesn't that make sense? And so, Black people should be welcomed into Catalonia, should be, and not welcome in a sense of being outsiders, because I think that's the assumption, no matter how long you live here, you're still considered to come from elsewhere, right? Even though you speak perfect Catalan. So as, as you explore the next period, I, hear that tomorrow is supposed to be the day that independence is declared. 
Maybe you need to complicate that and ask what kind of independence. Uh, you know, perhaps you need to talk about an independence which is anti-racist, anti-misogynist. And then invite me back. I'll be here for the celebration. Thank you.